We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Truth Perspective. It's April 16th. In the studio today, we have Corey Schink. Welcome back, everybody. Carolyn McCallum. Hi. How's everyone going? Elon Martin. Hello, everyone. And Harrison Cayley, myself. And today, we are very pleased to have with us a special guest, Graham McQueen. Um, Graham has a Ph.D. in Buddhist studies from the Harvard University, and he has taught in McMaster University's Religious Studies Department for 30 years. He became founding director of the Center for Peace Studies at McMaster, uh, helped develop the BA program in peace studies, and oversaw the development of peacebuilding projects in Sri Lanka, Gaza, Croatia, and Afghanistan. Graham was a member of the organizing committee of the Toronto hearings held on the 10th anniversary of 9-11, and he is co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies. And today we're going to be talking about his book that came out, when did it come out? 2014, The 2001 Anthrax Deception, The Case for a Domestic Conspiracy. So welcome to the show, Graham. Thank you very much, Harrison. So the book, The 2001 Anthrax Deception, it's on the anthrax attacks, which I'm sure, I'm sure everyone remembers something about the anthrax attacks. I mean, I... I remember them. I was in Canada at the time in high school, and um, but you know I didn't. I, like thinking back on it before I before I read your book, um, I realized I didn't really know much about them. I thought, okay, not like anthrax, Al Qaeda, something in there, and maybe a um, you know some crazy U.S. scientist that uh, mm-hmm. that stole this stuff, and that's really kind of the extent of what what came to mind when I was thinking about the anthrax attacks. So. But this book uh, came out 2014, and there's been a few stories in the in the news um, in in the couple of years since then. So maybe you could just start out by telling us what 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 were the anthrax attacks? Why are they still relevant today? Like, sure, absolutely. I have to say that my impressions weren't di- all that different from yours up until uh, a few years ago. I remembered rather vaguely that there were these anthrax attacks. They weren't as big a deal up here in Canada as they were in the U.S. And, um, you know, I had some vague idea that, that this had turned out to be fraudulent and that the source had been found to be in the U.S. <laughs> rather than in the Middle East. And I thought, you know what? If that's true, that's kind of important. So, mm-hmm. at some, you know, by this time I'd already studied the 9/11 attacks for some years, and I had decided that they were indeed fraudulent. And I thought, let's look at the anthrax attacks seriously. And being a retired guy now, when I decide to look into something seriously, I can do it. I can just clear my desk and say, okay, let's take a few months and do it properly. And I was, I was really surprised. Um, not just surprised that the anthrax attacks were traced to a U.S. source, um, 
because after all, it was Americans who were being killed by this, and it was considered a big terrorist attack, uh, kind of a big deal that it's an American source. But there was another thing that I hadn't known at all, hadn't even heard rumors of, and that is that the anthrax attacks were clearly connected to the 9-11 attacks. Mm-hmm. And so, I so thought, we, well, let's... I was going to say, well, so we, when you began, this was simply like a separate... 9-11 was pretty weird, so let's look into this. This sounds really weird, but it didn't... didn't it wasn't immediately apparent that, that the two ran in parallel. It wasn't immediately imper- apparent that they were physically directly connected. I mean, mm-hmm. I figured if they both happened in the fall of 2001 and the um, 9-11 attacks were fraudulent, then it, it stood, you know, it sounded as if probably they were going to turn out to be created by the same people. But I, I didn't know that there was actual evidence that they were directly connected and i found that i found out that they were pretty quickly i mean it does like a lot of this stuff it's not rocket science if you actually have the time and you take the time to look for evidence then there it is and i found that out pretty quickly and i thought okay so i gave a few talks right and uh, on the anthrax attacks i didn't pretend to be a big expert i knew who the experts were in that field and i clearly was not one of them and that was okay but I gave a few talks and people were interested and they encouraged me. And David Ray Griffin, who's written a whole bunch of books, at least 10 on the 9-11 attacks, encouraged me to write. He said, it's no good just giving a talk. You have to write it up. Okay. So I wrote it up initially as an article and it became a long article. And one of my friends said, this could be a book. And so, you know, that's how it works. Then it became a book. It's a fairly short book, but it's a book. And Clarity Press in Atlanta, Georgia, um, agreed to publish it. Um, to their credit, really, because, you know, anything like this that questions these so-called uh, terrorist attacks pinned on Muslims, anything that says that is immediately taboo, and it becomes difficult to talk about it, it becomes difficult to publish it. And um, so all credit to Clarity Press. And I realize I haven't answered your question, Harrison, yet, <laughs> but I just wanted to I just wanted to say a bit about how I got into this. Well, no problem. And before you go on, I just want to say that, uh, like you said, the book is short. It's about 200 pages, but it is just jam-packed full of interesting stuff. And I really recommend it. I think it's, even though it's not a 9-11 book per se, it's about the anthrax attacks, it is one of the best 9-11 books out there that I've read. So I just I want to recommend it to all our listeners. It's it's available. It's it's affordable and it's an easy breezy read. Even though it's jam packed, you know, full of stuff. So with thank that, thank you, thank you, thank on. you very much. Uh, ha- after you're having said that, I will naturally have to have to ask you to write a little blurb for the <laughs> okay <laughs> for the Clarity Press. Uh, collects these on the website. One of the neatest is by Peter Dale Scott, because I kind of revere him. He's such um, an innovator in the study of the deep state and deep politics. And he said basically what you said, that he sat down and read it and thought it was one of the best 9-11 books he'd ever read. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That's how he's describing it. And of course, it's true. In the end, I wrote it to a large extent, as a doorway into the issue of 9-11, a doorway that most people aren't familiar with. So having said all that, I can try and answer your question. You say, what what were the anthrax attacks? Well, okay, the 9-11 attacks happened, and directly after that, somebody, 
Uh, and by directly after that, I mean about starting about a week after the 9-11 attacks, somebody in the U.S. started sending out letters um, with spores of anthrax. Um, and we use the, the term anthrax both to refer to the, the actual bacteria, Bacillus anthracis, and also to refer to the disease that, that uh, Bacillus introduces into people. So the dormant form of the bacteria is spores, tiny, tiny little round spores. And somebody had spooned uh, some of these spores into envelopes and uh, had written a little letter to accompany the spores and sent them out. And so over the next few weeks, people in news agencies initially, um, because they sent them to ABC and NBC and CBS and so on, began getting strange rashes. And it was this was cutaneous anthrax that they were getting. And it was initially not diagnosed. Finally, um, a man named Robert Stevens was admitted to a hospital in Florida and October 3rd, 2001, was diagnosed as having pulmonary anthrax. That means he had actually breathed the spores in. And that's by far the deadliest form of the disease you can get, much more deadly than cutaneous. And um, it was diagnosed on October 3rd. It was announced to the public on October 4th, and he died on October 5th, 2001. And that's when the real scare began, because it was only after the announcement of Stevens you know, having contracted the disease and then having died, that anybody was supposed to have known that anthrax was in play. The people getting cutaneous anthrax, it as I say, it hadn't been diagnosed. And um, and so suddenly then, the, the you know, the, the panic about anthrax begins. Although, as I hope we'll get into later, the, the panic actually began before that, before that, which is one of the very, one of the very fishy things about this whole event. But anyway, people began dying. Robert Stevens was the first. And there were altogether five people who died, altogether 22 confirmed cases of anthrax. Some people think that, that twice that many people got it. Um, and people were taking, you know, ciprofloxacin, the antibiotic to get rid of it and also to just in case they were to breathe it in. And there was a big wave of panic and anxiety uh, in parts of the U.S., which was uh, further promoted by the mass media who kept talking about how scared everybody was. Um, and, uh, and so it was a very big deal from early October to late November, the last uh, death was, I believe, November 20th, um, and, and of course, continued after that and had several major effects in the U.S. politically. So it was a big deal. It was right after 9-11, and many people assumed initially that that's what it was. It was the same people, that 9-11 had been punch number two, and this was the second in a one-two punch, and they were part of the single operation, and this was scary and promoted all kinds of draconian legislation and foreign wars. And, of course, um, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, draw this little overview to an end in a moment, but uh, just to say the FBI was the agency 
that was authorized to investigate it, just as it was the agency authorized to investigate 9-11. And um, everybody immediately, initially assumed the two attacks were connected. And once it became clear that, in fact, <laughs> the anthrax attacks had come from a source inside the U.S., then the FBI, of course, had to quickly say, oh, no, they weren't connected. They went, well, First of all, we told you they probably were, but now we can say they weren't connected. And the reasons for that are obvious, because they threatened to bring down the 9-11 myth. Well, it was interesting to read your analysis of the four possibilities that have been postulated and how... They sort of had to cha-cha back and forth between them as more and more facts came out. It was, it, it right. looks very inept, but I mean, somehow they managed yeah. to pull it off anyway. Well, <laughs> I was, I was reading a, a couple articles in the past couple of days to prepare for the interview, and one of them was about the um, the FBI whistleblower. This was the guy in charge of the investigation, and he came out in I think it was April of last year. 2015, basically just pointing out all the problems with the FBI investigation. But one thing that just stood out, maybe we can get into it a bit later, but um, the one thing that stood out was that this was the FBI, and he, they were doing the inv investigation out of the Washington field office. And mm -hmm. I just happened to be reading right now at the same time Sibel Edmonds' memoir, Classified Woman, and that's mm -hmm. where she was working, the Washington field office. And so around mm -hmm. the exact same time as all this, well, at this, the same time that the anthrax attacks were happening, she was working there, and of course, if anyone knows Sabelle's story, uh, she uncovered just a, just so much going on in the FBI with espionage, just corruption. Um, it just it, it, it's 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 mind-boggling how uh, corrupt that field office was. Um, and she, of course, she only had access to uh, the field, the translators, um, kind of uh, portion of the of the field office, but the the amount, the cover-up of the th the things that she was trying to expose about what was going on in there went all you know the up the entire chain of command all the way up to Mueller at the time, who was head of yes. the FBI. Um, but I just wanted to throw that in there um, just to give some context. But um, to get back to the story, so this so we had nine eleven, of course, on nine eleven, and then one week later, these letters start going out. Now, it's not until October 4th or 5th that anyone actually gets confirmation that there's an anthrax attack going on. Right. And then one more kind of time marker. So that's October 4th or 5th. Then, um, just as reference for some future discussion that we'll get into, on October 26th is when the Patriot Act was brought into effect and approved. Right. So... Um, Let's get into some of the things that were happening between 9-18 and the time that, um, that the anthrax attacks were actually made public. Because there's a lot that was going on in those weeks. So this is before anyone knows that there's anthrax. Um, and maybe we can start with just what's going on politically. So after 9-11, um, there's these attacks. And then right away, um, Bush makes a call for some legislation. Um, what was it called? The authorization... Um, Authorization for the use of military force, and and then shortly after that calls for some more anti-terror legislation, which became the Patriot Act. So maybe you can just right. give us some background about what was going on there and who was involved, what happened. Well, yeah, well, you've pointed to two very important things that were going on, and they are connected, and it's important to see that. So um, as I point out in the book, there the anthrax attacks 
had it, one of their huge effects was in causing the loss of civil rights for Americans. They directly contributed to getting the Patriot Act passed and also the NSA spying. And it's important to remember that. However, we cannot delink that from war. This is all about going to war as well. So, you know, 9-11, what happens? All these old guys come on the radio, you know, and the TV saying, this is an act of war, this is an act of war. You get Kissinger, you get Krauthammer, you get Kagan, all kinds of neocons saying, they've, America's been attacked with an act of war. Well, what's the significance of that? Well, first of all, it means we have to respond with war. If it were a crime, after all, we would need to have a legal process. And legal processes, if they're to be any good, require gathering of evidence. They require argument. They require a search for the truth. We don't want, we don't want any of that. These guys are very explicit about it. This is not a crime. We don't want a criminal process. We want war. We want to devastate the people who did this. I mean, they're amazingly outspoken about this. And so sure enough, Bush comes out a couple of days later and says, yeah, this was an act of war. Now, I'm trying to get people to see how important that is because, you know, a number of things follow from that. That's a signal, first of all, that we're not going to bother gathering evidence and making arguments and trying to take people into courts of law and looking at international law. It's not how we're, that's not what war is about. You know, we're going to attack somebody. That's the first signal. Secondly, to the extent that we use any judicial process, you know, in the in the war on terror, we're going to set up special military tribunals. And those tribunals are not going to be established by the legislature, you know, by Congress. They're not going to be established, certainly, by the judicial branch. They're going to be established by and responsible to Secretary of Defense. So they'll be under the executive branch, they'll be under the military, and they're and they're not going to have the usual guarantees that Americans expect and that um what should we say? Democratic countries in general expect there will be no such protections. People will be at our mercy in these military tribunals. So here's how it works. First, we declared an act of war. We say we're going to respond with war. We pervert justice and weaken law by setting up these kangaroo courts to snatch people and, and uh, put them in Guantanamo Bay and so on. And then, of course, as you just mentioned, we get this special resolution passed. I think it was pa- it was very quickly. It was passed, I think, on September 14th, just a few days after 9-11. Um, and Congress, very unwisely, you know, approves there the use of military force, which is what Bush wanted. That means they can now, he can now claim he's the commander in chief, which the U.S. Constitution gives the president the right to be. So now he's the commander of chief, commander in chief, or at least he says he is, and he, he deserves special powers. He can have his military, uh, military tribunals. He can ignore this and that. Uh, typical restriction. And uh, and when you look at that resolution, the authorization of military force, it's very dangerous. First of all, you know, Tom Daschle, the head of uh, the uh, Senate majority leader, who is a Democrat, mm-hmm. uh, was invited to the White House <laughs> shortly after 9-11. I think it was on September 12th. 
And he was, he said, he was told, you know, we really need some Congress to give an approval. Cause as you guys all know, the U.S. Constitution gives to Congress the right to declare war. It's not the president's right. So if Bush is going to have any fig leaf at all for attacking all these countries, he needs to get Congress on board. Well, Tom Daschle and George Bush are very far apart ideologically. But Tom Daschle, Senate Majority Leader, Democrat, has been swindled like everybody else by 9-11. He's convinced, you know, it's al-Qaeda and America's under attack. and So he agrees. He agrees the resolution is needed, and he even volunteers to be the one to put it forth, to propose it, which really guarantees its acceptance, because the Republicans already have a majority, a House of Representatives. Uh, the Democrats have a very slim majority, I think, by one person in the Senate and could cause trouble. Um, but he's basically saying, we won't cause trouble. I'll be the one to propose it. And so he proposes it. It goes through with, I think, just one dissenting vote um, in all of Congress. <laughs> um, and and so what's happening is people are accepting that it's an act of war. They're accepting that we are going to have to go to war in response. Congress is coming on board. Everything's falling into place. The president now is commander-in-chief, or at least sees himself that way. He demands extraordinary powers. He sets up kangaroo courts. Um, and the um, the ground is now laid for two things, for military invasions of other countries, first Afghanistan, then Iraq, no legal process going on, no no attempt to, to try bin Laden, for example, or to present evidence of guilt. No, this is war. Um, and at the same time, you know, this is when you can convince a population that you're at war and that war is needed and that you're not striking the first blow, you know, the blow is struck against you, you're just defending yourself, that's when you can now say we're going to restrict your rights because we all know that all citizens have to pull together. You don't get to have democratic rights during a war, right? This is a national emergency. Everybody needs to pull together. And that's precisely what was said. So that's why uh, Ashcroft, Attorney General, immediately after 9-11 begins to say, we're going to be introducing new legislation. This is going to involve, you know, certain restrictions on civil rights. And it's all tied to this notion that we are at war. And they keep saying that. We need this because we are at war. And, uh, and there are some further dates of interest there, but I I'll just stop here for a moment, take a break, break, and ask you if I'm on the right track. Oh yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I, you know, what strikes me as incredible uh, in 2020 vision is that uh, the anthrax letters sent to two of maybe five or six of the most uh, high-profile individuals, Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy, uh, who yeah. I, I think was also uh, head of a, an important uh, committee of some kind. Uh, yes, Senate should. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if, if you just look at those two two events, these letters going to these incredibly uh, politically powerful people who are instrumental in uh, assisting and bringing about these uh, the, the Patriot Act and these new dr draconian measures, it's yeah. like uh, it, it's it's the elephant in the room. I mean, it it's. It yeah, it really is. It really it's, is. It's painfully obvious. You make a, you make a really interesting point about uh, Senator Daschle too. 
is that he was alive to the implications of such a sweeping piece of reform, and you wrote that he modified it uh, in his in his agreement to shepherd this thing through through the Senate. I mean, he wasn't against it. It's not like he was standing there going, "We can't do this." He was he was actually right. for it, as you said. But yeah. he did change the wording to tighten it up to apply only to nine eleven, because right. the problem is, and you write here. The problem he had with the resolution is that it gave Bush the right to determine matters of fact. Like he got to say Mm -hmm. what the reality was and having Mm -hmm. set that down, he says, well, this is the reality. Therefore, we can take this, that and the other step. And Daschle and this, this, according to your thesis, made him a bit of a target, even though he was being so cooperative that he would even put this small impediment in the way of this march to war and, you know, total powers um well you know it was it was, and it was so tiny it wasn't like he was trying to you know scupper the whole thing <laughs> but that yeah. was enough to freak everybody out you know well but that yeah. was yeah. To, to that was right after 9-11 right so mm-hmm. on the 12th and then to the 14th they were dealing with this um use of force legislation and so like you said um dashel had some had some problems with the wording on a bit and and he changed a bit it's still i mean the the end result was still pretty terrible when you when you look at it but then this was still about what three weeks or so before any letters were sent to dashel and Leahy. so yeah. uh, but so uh um, well, well, maybe let, you yeah, lead up to that yeah i i wanted to talk about those letters to dashel and Leahy, but first i'm really glad that you brought up the text of this authorization on military force. Several of you brought it up because I was quite struck by it. Um, yeah, so the original resolution was written by people in the White House. It wasn't written by Daschel. It was sent to him and, and, you know, this is what we want you to introduce. Well, he was shocked by it um, because the first part has to do with 9-11, um, you know, we're authorized to use force against those people uh, who did 9-11. But then there's a second part, which says, and <laughs> we're authorized to use force to prevent such attacks in the future. Um, and, of course, Dashiell said, my God, you know, you could use that to justify attacking anybody. Anybody. You could say, oh, looks like Iran might do uh, something against us in the future. So, this thing authorizes us to attack Iran. So he did cut out that last half and changed it um, so that it focused on 9-11. But unfortunately, what he left was this, it gave the president the power to determine who carried out the 9-11 attacks. Think about it. You know, I mean, if this had been treated as a crime, then there would have to be an investigation. Who carried out these attacks and it would have to be credible hopefully for the international community and then that evidence would have to be presented in a court of law and the you know the um the accused would have hopefully a lawyer that could give a counter narrative and could cross-examine all that stuff but by passing that legislation they just said no bush gets to determine who did 9-11 well, you know, half the game has been given away immediately. And that's what people have to realize is that within the first few days after 9-11, the ground was set for all these horrific things that came later. Um, so 
I'm glad that you pointed that out. Now, the other thing about the attacks on uh, the senators, yeah, senators, these were two very powerful and important senators. Daschle was Senate majority leader. He got to kind of shepherd the Democratic senators to encourage them on what they should vote on, to establish a timetable, to consult. He's supposed to consult with the Republicans and with the White House. And it's a very powerful role. And Leahy was chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which had among its tasks to look at any legislation, look very carefully at any legislation that was proposed that might affect the rights of American citizens. So obviously his committee had to look very closely at the Patriot Act that was being proposed and where necessary to slow it down, to revise it, to stop it, all that kind of thing. And I look at Dashiell and Leahy and I kind of go, well, you know, it looks from our perspective as if they really didn't do very much. I mean, they were swindled like most people by 9-11 and they were convinced this had to be passed and they were doing their best to get it through. However, we have to give credit where credit is due and that is that they did both put up a little fuss from time to time. And I think it's the little fuss that they put up which led to them being sent letters with anthrax spores in them. And and this is quite astonishing. So, um, you know, Ashcroft is nagging and nagging. I went through all the speeches he gave in that time, September and October, and he's just relentless in saying we have to pass this new legislation restricting people's rights. The Democrats are, you know, obstructing us. The, the, you know, it will be on their heads if another, you know, attack comes soon. And so, of course, Dashiell and Leahy are under all kinds of pressure. They're feeling this. Um, and then finally, you know, the administration gets involved and Bush encourages the, this to be, he says this should be passed quickly. And Cheney uh, meets with a bunch of uh, Republicans and says, how about October 5th? I would like to see this passed by October 5th at the latest. And remember, this is 2001. And so this is still really ram, ramming this through very quickly. Well, guess what? Uh, Leahy and Daschle are the two guys who were responsible for that October 5th deadline being missed. They balk. They put up a fuss. And almost immediately after that deadline is missed, guess what? Two letters with anthrax spores, very sophisticated, weaponized anthrax spores, are sent to precisely those two and only those two senators. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not rocket science to figure out what's happening here. And this could have killed them, of course. So this is direct intimidation of Congress. Mm -hmm. And, um, and of course, it helped to get it, to get the Patriot Act through Congress. No. It was, one of, the knock, one of the knock-on effects of that was that effectively, uh, from having these letters open within Congress, I remember you writing that they evacuated the entire building. Congress was dispersed all around the city. They were working in, in cramped quarters with inadequate equipment, you know, computers, printers, whatever. And it, yep. it was, I think you described it as a form of strategy of tension. So all of these yep. people were worried. They're all stressed. They they can't focus, and so it it facilitated this bill going through pretty much unscathed because That's there right. just simply wasn't the time and wasn't wasn't the the mental presence collectively to really look at it. So I mean, it, it was a very devious that was maneuver. 
It was devious. And, and when we see how 9-11 and anthrax were used together, 9-11 shocks everybody. Um, people in Congress are told there's a plane headed for the U.S. Capitol. They freak. They scatter from the building. Daschle says there was no protocol. Capital had never been evacuated like this before. They're running all over the place. Um, you know, they finally drift back timidly in the evening to sing God Bless America, you know, on the steps of the Capitol. But this, this is a big intimidation on 9-11. Then it's followed up. And so there's yellow police tape and concrete barriers and everything protecting the Capitol after that. It's in a state of constant harassment and fear. They're told not to use their, um, uh, usual license plates, which indicate that they're members of Congress. They shouldn't wear the congressional pins. They should make sure nobody knows who they are. This is what they're going through. Then the anthrax attacks happened. The whole Hart Senate building, as you said, is evacuated and has to be evacuated for several months while it's cleaned up. And that's because of the high degree of sophistication of the anthrax that was sent. And again, they're, they're, you know, dispersed all over the place using other people's fax machines and stuff as this Patriot Act is going through. So there's a state of intimidation of Congress that lasts actually over several months and that is happening in this crucial period during the attacks on Afghanistan and the passage of the Patriot Act. It's such a really gross intimidation of the legislative branch. Graham, um, some years ago I read a statistic where there was a pr pretty high percentage of uh, people in the U.S. who had tied um, the attack that the U.S. made in Iraq, and I think it was 2003, with 9-11. And right. uh, reading your book, um, it, th there were some things that you suggest um, were responsible for planting the seeds of that connection. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yes. <clears throat> um, when the anthrax attacks first began, nobody knew, of course, uh, or nobody supposedly knew who they were from, who had, uh, who was responsible. But it, you know, it didn't seem like rocket science. I mean, okay, there'd been the 9-11 attacks, and right after them, there's another attack, clearly, you know, terrorist aimed at news agencies and senators. And then, of course, the letters, the text of the letters was open, you know, and it's written in this crude, unidiomatic language with spelling, um, <clears throat> um, death to America, death, death to Israel, Allah is great, you know, you die now, and penicillin is spelt wrong, and you, you know, it's, it's, I mean, and at the top of the letter, it gives the date as 9-11. So in other words, here are letters which basically say to people, hey, we're the ones who did 9-11. We're the same people. We're back for number two. And we're Muslims. And we're, you know, we want to scare you. In fact, one of them says, are you afraid? <laughs> in other words, you know, that's exactly afraid. what terror <laughs> That. I mean, that this is pretty gross stuff. So this is what people are getting, and they naturally conclude that this is al-Qaeda. Um, this is bin Laden's group back for number two. And so a poll taken um, in early to mid-October, I don't remember the exact date, revealed, not surprisingly, the majority of Americans thought this was al-Qaeda doing the anthrax attacks. Now, 
There's where we come into the next, here's where Iraq gets involved. Now we get people in the media, various experts saying, well, you know, it's true that Al-Qaeda might have a, a small capacity to make anthrax. They supposedly had uh, set up a little lab in, I don't know, Kandahar or something. But this is pretty sophisticated stuff. And we think that you couldn't you couldn't make this in caves in Afghanistan or something. We think a state supplier is giving it to Al-Qaeda. Well, gee, who could that be? And, of course, immediately they begin saying it looks like it could be Iraq because we know Iraq had an anthrax program. And we suspect they never did get rid of that anthrax. They've still got it. And they can use it against us. And so this is what I call the double perpetrator hypothesis. And it becomes big in the starting in the middle of October. And you have Senator McCain going on, you know, late night talk show um, saying, you know, dropping the name of Iraq. We think maybe this came from Iraq. And you have newspapers all over the place, The Guardian, here, there, everywhere, saying experts are speculating that this may have come from Iraq. So the whole let's get Iraq thing starts around middle of October, and it looks like that's where they're going. It looks like, it looks to me as if that was the original plan. Mm -hmm. Get Al-Qaeda involved first, and then say they had a state sponsor, which was being claimed all along anyway. The idea of Iraq as a state sponsor from al-Qaeda, by the way, goes back before 9-11. They had planted the seeds for that scenario. So look, look at what's ha- So we'll have to get them both. So we'll attack Afghanistan first, and then we'll attack Iraq. It makes perfect sense. I think that was the plan, and it looked pretty clever. Uh, unfortunately, it fell apart. It fell apart pretty quickly, and we can talk about that if you like. Yeah, let's get into that because um, I, I, I th- I'm pretty sure that in several um, kind of newspapers and magazines that were essentially PNAC propaganda rags, right? A lot of these yeah. authors were the were the first people to make the tie between Iraq and Al Qaeda, and specifically even with the hijackers, they were saying yeah. that. Like there was the the whole story about Muhammad Atta meeting an Iraqi intelligence agent in Prague, and so that story right. was going around for a while. And then yeah. um, the German Bild newspaper re- uh, reported that uh, another story they'd interviewed um, an Israeli intelligence like security per- person who directly witnessed the Iraqi intelligence agent handing over anthrax to Muhammad Atta. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm laughing, but yeah, he directly gonna, witnessed it. Yeah. If you're going to lie, you lie big. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, he so, witnessed it, but, but he didn't want to do anything about it. <laughs> yeah. So maybe talk a bit about that, because that Prague visit was a big part of the, of the tie between Al-Qaeda and Iraq, right? That was the linchpin of the whole That's story. That's right. Yes. The, the Prague story was one of those narratives that was clearly meant to do a lot of work. It was, uh, if you have Mohammed Atta, just to remind your listeners, he was supposedly the lead guy of, among the 19 hijackers. And as I recall, he was piloting the plane that flew into North, the North Tower. Um, if Mohammed Atta uh, is seen hanging out with an Iraqi um, political guy or intelligence agent, 
then that's the connection they wanted. This means that Al-Qaeda was being sponsored by Iraq. It means that whether it's 9-11 or anything else, um, obviously Iraq is part of this. And so we start preparing not just for hitting Afghanistan, we start preparing for hitting Iraq. And that story uh, about Atta and the Iraqi um, grew legs. It became big. It was given an astonishing amount of detail. It was confirmed at one point by uh, the folks in Prague. And it seemed solid, or at least a naive reader of the mainstream news would have thought it was solid, even though, of course, as usual, we weren't given any real evidence of it. It turned out to be complete baloney. There was no such meeting. Um, but this was one of, of numerous false narratives that were given out during this period. And I must say, this is kind of an, an aside. And I've been studying war for a long time. I've been a peace activist for a long time. I'm not naive, or at least I thought I wasn't naive, <laughs> about the mainstream media and, and the way they report things. But when people would call them the Ministry of Propaganda, I used to think that was maybe a little bit shrill, maybe a little bit of an oversimplification. After writing this anthrax book, I'm, I'm pretty much prepared to accept that designation, Ministry of Propaganda. I mean, because one paper after another, very widely dispersed, not only the big ones, New York Times, Washington Post, but, you know, little newspapers all over the place are reporting all this stuff about 9-11 and anthrax, and they're clearly getting these these handouts from the government, and they're just, they're just printing them as news, I mean, as fact, and, um, and it's just a well-orchestrated propaganda campaign. And um, I'm sorry, I didn't know where I was going there, but I, want, I well, wanted to say that. <laughs> I'll, I'll steer you in a, in a direction with that because we, okay. so we had this this propaganda barrage about the connections between Al Qaeda and Iraq. But at the same right. time, at the same time in these in these months in September on, and October, um, like you alluded to earlier, there was talk about anthrax attacks and the danger of bioterrorism. So already. Yes. I, um, I've got some notes here, like on, on September 22nd, there were media reports about um, warnings of this, the danger of bioterrorism. There were um, accounts of the, the possibility that crop duster planes could be used and retrofitted to disperse um, biological agents, bioweapons. And then also there was the Al-Qaeda connection to, to this Al-Qaeda already going on, um, what, 11 days after 9-11. And, right. Um, then on before October 3rd, so we're not sure exactly when, but Cipro sales were all, already spiking and going up before October 3rd. So this was before anyone knew about the anthrax attacks. People were buying this stuff. Uh, maybe yeah. just say something about this Cipro stuff because there were people taking it and yeah, yeah just, maybe just comment on the that. general. Yeah. The general principle is quite interesting. I mean, just ask your listeners to think about this. So if somebody, if somebody is diagnosed with a really scary disease like anthrax, because I mean, if you breed this stuff in the and, and develop pulmonary anthrax, chances are somewhere between 75% and 95% that you are going to die. So this is a scary disease. Um, so now when you hear that somebody has got it and that he's, you know, he's not 
his sorting wool for a living or anything. There's no reason for this guy to get it. He's, you know, a Photoshop guy at uh, working for a tabloid called The Sun. He's got it, and quickly it becomes clear that there's no legitimate reason for him to got it to get it. It looks like a terrorist attack. Well, my God, you can see why people would start running out and trying to get Cipro, which is the antibiotic recommended at the time against anthrax. So if we were looking at a timeline here, we would, as you indicated, expect to see a spike, a sudden spike in in the sale of Cipro after October 3rd, which is when the first anthrax case was identified. All right. But what we actually find is that sales of Cipro went up dramatically before that, somewhere around the middle of September, a couple of weeks before the first diagnosis, Cipro sales start going up and, and we're told that there's a panic. We're told there's a run on Cipro. Druggists are quoted saying we can't get enough of the stuff. People are worried. They're worried about an anthrax attack. So you really have to sit down and say, what, what's going on? Why would people be worried about an anthrax attack when there's no sign of anthrax anywhere around? Nobody's been diagnosed. We, you know, there's been no communication at this point from any foreign, uh, governor or terrorist saying we're going to hit you with anthrax. Nothing. Silence. And yet there's this apparent foreknowledge. And that's what led me to write a whole chapter of the book on foreknowledge. So, for example, George Bush and Dick Cheney were put on Cipro on September 11th. And that's one of the things that came out. Um, and, you know, uh, they didn't want to talk about that very much, but, but that became clear. Now, if you try to defend that and say, oh, yeah, but that's just protocol, you know, there's been a major terrorist event. It might be followed by a biological, uh, by a biological attack. So you put, you know, president, vice president on Cipro as a precaution. The reason why that doesn't work is because there's a lot of other people who start to get the information that it looks like an anthrax attack is coming. And one of the journalists for the Washington Post, Richard Cohen, actually says, uh, oh, yeah, uh, a high official in the Bush administration gave me a tip, namely that I should start taking Cipro. And this is well before Robert Stevens was diagnosed. Nobody was supposed to know that this was required. So he said, I immediately started taking it. And I knew about Cipro when most people hadn't even heard of it. I mean, think about that. A high official in the administration gave him a tip. So the obvious question is, did the FBI really go after Richard Cohen and find out who the heck gave him a tip? I've seen no evidence of it. I don't know who gave him the tip. I mean, if we found that out, we might be able to break the case easily. Um so this is the kind of thing that's going on. All kinds of people are taking it. New York Times reporter says that, uh, you know, women are now carrying Cipro in their fashionable little, fashionable little, I don't remember, Prada bags or whatever, um, in New York. This is all before anybody's been diagnosed. So, yeah, this is fishy. This is really fishy. When you're ever looking at an alleged terrorist event, one of the first things you do is look for suspicious foreknowledge that somebody knew it was coming. And you've got, you've got that in spades in the anthrax attacks. Well, you know, I was living in New York at the time. Um, 
and uh, I can testify to this, uh, a friend of the family who was in the medical mm-hmm. profession, I don't know if she had a yeah. Prada bag or not, but um, <laughs> she, she told me one day, you know, I'm, I'm on a prescription of Cipro. Uh, so, yeah. you know, so I knew one of these people uh, yeah. who, who had, you know, to the extent that the psychological warfare was, was working uh, in yeah. the U.S., who had enough fear to go out and, and start uh, taking this drug. But um, yeah. you, spoke, uh, you spoke of foreknowledge, and um, in your book, Graham, uh, you mentioned the um, this, uh, this special operation that was underway only months uh, before the actual anthrax letters were sent out, called uh, the Dark Winter Exercises. Yes, and uh, and the parallels that you draw between these exercises and what had actually occurred are are quite interesting. You know, usually when um, uh, when we hear about uh, exercises and things, they they happen uh, more or less at the same time as a as a false flag operation. This happened a few months just prior, but yeah. uh, but no less interesting, it seems. Yeah. Yes, uh, dark winter is kind of a bizarre thing. I mean, obviously governments carry out simulations and games and exercises all the time to ensure they'll be prepared. Um, so, you know, when I heard that they had carried out a biological uh, warfare exercise a few months before the anthrax attacks occurred, I thought, well, I mean, it could be, you know, just a genuine thing. But the more I looked at it, the more I thought, oh, come on, you know, I mean, a lot of the people who were deeply, deeply implicated uh, um, as suspects in all these fake terrorist events were actual, you know, participants in that exercise. And the exercise was not mainly an anthrax exercise. It was mainly smallpox. Um, But there are all kinds of parallels, as you mentioned. Uh, for example, it gradually becomes clear that an organization connected to Osama bin Laden is responsible. Um, well, that's interesting. Just a few months before Osama bin Laden is, is accused of 9-11. And then as the exercise progresses, it, it becomes clear that a state is supplying him with the actual biological material. Gee, who could that be? Hmm. And it turns out, it turns out it's Iraq. And so this whole double perpetrator model was tried out several months before the actual anthrax attacks. And you get all kinds of other things. You get them trying out, oh, it looks like we're going to have to restrict civil liberties. And it looks like, oh dear, there's a tax on Muslims in the United States taking place, which of course did take place, and so on and so forth. I believe I drew up something like 10 parallels between the two, so that it's very hard to look at dark winter uh, as an innocent exercise when you compare the two. And in fact, I even briefly raised the question, I I, I later gave a paper on this in an academic conference. Um, I said, you know, this really raises the question of what is the difference between an exercise like Dark Winter and an exercise like the anthrax attacks? I mean, we tend to say they're completely different. One is a simulation and one is an attack. But you could equally well say that the... um, 
the the attacks in the fall were a simulation, uh, a lethal simulation. In other words, that you use all the main elements of a simulation, uh, including leaks to the press and you know scary announcements on on television and and all kinds of lamentation articles and and accusing Iraq and you do all the things you would do in a good exercise. The only the main thing that's different is instead of fake anthrax in letters because. Dark Winter included letters to media as well. Now you use real anthrax. And now you have some real people really dying. And that makes it noteworthy because you can have any number of exercise simulations and the public doesn't give a damn. Mm -hmm. Um, But as soon as people are dying, the public wakes up. And this is very scary because I see this as one of the patterns we're up against. Um... Uh, the FBI and the RCMP, for example, carry out, uh, promote all kinds of fraudulent terrorist events. Mm-hmm. And we, we know this. It's a matter of record. But often they don't have much effect on the public. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a very strong, strong temptation, therefore, to cross that line and say, you know, it may take a few deaths in the next one of these. Because as soon as people die, it has a much bigger effect. Well, it certainly had a very strong priming effect on the media, uh, those that participated. And you mentioned that Judith Miller and a few other notorious names actually participated in that exercise. But That's right. You know, it, it made them very quick to jump on the, quote, real event, unquote. And they'd already been primed with what to write, when to write, those types of stories to put out. I mean, it's like they'd been put through their paces and now let's do it for real. Oh, absolutely. Judith Judith Miller is a fascinating case. I mean, here she was writing a book about biological warfare with two other people. And the book was timed so that it came out right, you know, as the anthrax attacks were were occurring. And, of course, immediately became a bestseller and blah, blah, blah. And in the book, um, you know, there's a lot of blaming of, of Iraq. There's suspicion cast on Russia. All kinds of people are being set up. So that's Judith Miller. But there she is, as you say, in June 2001 in the Dark Winter Exercise. She's there playing a journalist, which, of course, she is. (laughs) That's right. This this was her audition. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's kind of hard not to think it is because then the anthrax attacks start. And who gets attacked? Well, uh, letter. The first wave of letters is sent out to journalists, and guess who gets a letter? Judith Miller. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Judith Miller. Judith Miller's letter was fake anthrax, um, and there were a few. Uh, there were a few letters with fake substances, as well as other letters with real substances. But that that's part of the pattern too. I mean, that was part of the pattern in Dark Winter. You know, that's what you do. You know, you create chaos. You give people, you send out letters, and some have this kind of powder, and some have that, and some have the most sophisticated anthrax spores ever seen. And, you know, it's a big, so, I mean, if you trace through someone like Miller, you go, oh, my God. And then, of course, as soon as she gets this letter, she writes an article about it, and and it helps promote her book. And, you know, I mean, it's it's all tied together. Well, it, it, it strikes me as pretty absurd, that whole scenario, because in September you had 
real anthrax being sent to certain individuals and then fake anthrax being sent to other individuals, would a real mm -hmm. terrorist do that? If you were sending anthrax and you were targeting someone, if you're sending Judith Miller anthrax, why use fake anthrax? It just well, the, yeah, it's a good question. I think it's it is more typical of uh, state sponsored false flag attack yeah. than it would be on Al Qaeda foot soldiers. The Al Qaeda foot soldiers probably wouldn't use the fake product; they'd probably just use the real. Mm -hmm. Well, well, and Judith Miller's interesting for other reasons too. She was she was instrumental in the the Plame affair. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yes. She was a girlfriend of Louis Libby, who had also had numerous ties to all these PNAC people. And uh, yeah. Wayne Madsen wrote a report. I don't know if it's if uh, I haven't been able to back it up, though. He said from his sources in intelligence that um, that Libby was a, a lawyer for some very high placed like Mossad linked individuals, which wouldn't mm -hmm. surprise me. No. Um, and so there's surprise me either. So there's so there's Judith Miller, um, in the middle of all of this, and it, re it well reading the book, I, I can't remember if you say this or not, but it just struck me that it it was like the the letter that got sent to her with the fake anthrax. It was it was a publicity stunt for her book. Right? Yeah, I think that's part of what it was, and um, she kept writing throughout this whole period of the anthrax attacks. Uh, articles about the anthrax, and this was she was a big shot. She was very influential, and these would get published in the New York Times. Uh, it was it was quite a while before the New York Times eventually found out that she was writing BS, and they cut her loose. Um, but that you know that took a while. Meantime, she had been in Iraq, basically bossing around U.S. military guys in the field. You know, go look there and go look there. It's a, it's bizarre, and you kind of wonder who is this Judith Miller really? You know, mm -hmm. is is she is is she just like a flaky journalist, or is she on somebody's payroll here? Has she got authority at some level that you know? Well, you have to ask that question. Mm -hmm. Well, Graham, you mentioned the absolute lethality of the anthrax virus. And I was wondering, yeah. uh, could, could you talk a little bit how that actually served to undermine their entire argument that uh, it was uh, Iraq and al-Qaeda teaming up to attack America? Right. <clears throat> so, first of all, the, Ira the people who were pushing the Iraq theory, sorry, the uh, al-Qaeda theory, said, oh, there was some evidence that al-Qaeda had a little lab somewhere, I think in Kandahar somewhere, where they could make anthrax. Well, okay, I, the guy running the lab had a BA or something. <laughs> and, and, you know, under those circumstances, you cannot produce a really, uh, really highly advanced biological weapon. So that was silly once, once it was seen just how sophisticated some of this anthrax was. Now, there were two different grades of anthrax used. First grade during the attacks on the uh, press was not uh, all that sophisticated. I mean, it was pretty sophisticated, but not nothing compared to the second product. The product that was used against the senators was really staggering. And um, so anyway, uh, you know, you can you can work with Al Qaeda for a while, but pretty soon you have to say, "Oh my God, they couldn't have produced this." Especially the stuff sent to the senator. So that's when you go to the state sponsor. 
Now, notice, by the way, that any intelligent person would have said the same about the 9-11 attacks. Do we really mm-hmm. think that these guys from caves mm-hmm. did this attack? You know, this obviously had to have been supported by a state. But anyway, back to the anthrax attacks. So we're, we're looking at Iraq. Unfortunately, uh, some scientists who seem not to have been fully briefed on this fraudulent <laughs> operation actually got a hold of the anthrax spores and looked at them, the most advanced ones. And they said, first of all, you know, this isn't Iraqi. And and um, by the way, Brian Ross of I briefly forget what network he worked for. Does anyone remember? No. Okay, Brian Ross was a pretty major journalist who broke a number of these fraudulent stories during the anthrax uh, attacks, and one of them um, was where he came out and said, oh, this substance called bentonite has been found in the anthrax mixed in with the spores. And the what did they describe it as? The potent substance. And actually, bentonite is just clay, and we it's used in kitty litter, all right? But, you know, <laughs> it's called the potent substance was found. And and since bentonite is used in the Iraqi product, it's it's... An Iraqi signature. This is like Saddam Hussein signing this stuff. Oh my God. So yeah. several articles got published and, uh, Brian Ross said he had, I think it was something like four independent high level sources. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. He was on ABC News and he started out with three, but then he had four by the end of October. That's right. And it That's got, it. you got yeah, it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and it got tied to the Prague story. So I mean, like, that's a double whammy. That's right. It was given at the same time. So we've got Atta meeting Iraqi agent. We've got Saddam's signature in the anthra. I mean, I think they were trying really hard here. They were pretty desperate to push their double perpetrator story. Um, but, you know, there was dissent within the ranks, clearly, because uh, it became clear from scientists who looked at this stuff, including the... Um, Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, who obviously weren't brought into this plot, uh, they looked at it and they said, "There's no bentonite. <laughs> There's no bentonite here," and so that story just crumbled. And that was really the last serious attempt. This is end of October, nearly early November. This is the last serious attempt, I think. Well, no, there was one more, sorry, one more later. But it was one of the last to really try and frame Iraq for this. Uh, that that project was not working very well. Um, that, in fact, the scientists who looked at this said, first of all, this is the Ames strain of anthrax. Anthrax has different strains or sub-varieties. And the anthrax strain was first isolated in the early 80s in the United States. And it was very virulent and was used widely in labs in the United States, but highly secure labs. And it had been given to a few allies, but there was not a shred of evidence that Iraq or Al-Qaeda had ever got hold of the AIM strain. So that was the first giveaway. And the second was the way it was, the way it, the, these spores were uh, weaponized. And by the way, the FBI will contest what I'm saying here. They claim that that they weren't weaponized. I think that is such a childish comment that doesn't even bear refuting. I mean, 
weaponize to weaponize something means to make it into a weapon. And in the case of something like anthrax, it means you're preparing it in a way that makes it more effective and deadly against people. That's really all it means. Mm-hmm. And it's clear this was done. The spores were very small and uniform and all kinds of refuse had been removed. So we have a very clean product. The spores are just the right size to be breathed in by a human being to get past the nose hairs and so on. And once lodged in the lungs, uh, they were large enough to not be breathed out again. So they're the optimal size as a weapon. But not only that, they are coated in a way that will... Um, aerosolize them because anthrax when it's wild tends to clump and there's an electrostatic charge and the spores stick together so it it doesn't readily form an aerosol but this stuff had gotten a coating on the spores um, which allowed it to float it became more floaty if you like to the extent that when uh, Dashiell, the young woman who opened Dashiell's mail for him, and of course these are the people who were at more risk than the senators themselves, when she opened that letter, this white stuff floated out of the envelope. She started to scream, and it contaminated partly through just floating and partly because of God getting on people's clothing and shoes, the whole building quite rapidly. And it even showed the capacity to re-aerosolize. That is, when it settled on furniture or whatever, if you bumped that furniture, it would take to the air again. Well, wild anthrax doesn't do this. This was stuff that had been treated. Okay, treated by whom? Well, you know, a few people were willing to say it, even though initially they wouldn't give their names. Uh, experts would say, you know, this looks like our own program. I mean, this is what we've been working on for years. And, you know, we use silica and, you know, as to coat the stuff and, and, you know, it, and we have labs that are experts in aerosolization. And so already in October, the U.S. is being mentioned by some uh, of these sources as a possible source of this. And as the year draws to a close by December 2001, it is acknowledged even by the Homeland uh, Department of Homeland Security and the FBI that, it, gee whiz, it looks like there is a, quote, domestic source of this anthrax. And, and I think it's a very interesting term, a domestic source. It's kind of, it's not too scary. You know, you can imagine someone going down to their drugstore. Excuse me, can I have a little bit of this aerosolized anthrax? So what, what, what does a domestic source really mean? It means a highly secure laboratory, one of just a few, very small number, tied to U.S. military and intelligence. And there's really only three major suspects among U.S. labs. Fort Detrick, the Tell Memorial Institute, and Dugway Proving Ground, all of which are connected to the military and intelligence community. So that's what we're talking about when we say domestic source. Well, Graham, I think that, uh, that Charles Krauthammer, he kind of just blew everyone out of the water by knowing exactly what was going on because... On October 4th, before Robert Stevens died, he, in an article, called it weaponized anthrax. Before anyone even knew that it was a terrorist attack, he he knew it was weaponized. And in that same article, 
he pretty much gave the gave the game away for the purpose of all, of what this attack was for because he he wrote uh, I'll just quote like a brief fragment of a sentence from it well actually no full sentence so this was his goal basically quote harbor terrorists your regime your regime uh, what dies harbor terrorists mm-hmm. and your regime dies so that's what was being set up. And yeah. right from the first day, the day before, you know, ever, anyone even knew this was anthrax. Krauthammer was saying it was weaponized anthrax, and this was basically, like you said, this was the the plan was to tie this to Iraq as a as a means of, um, uh, well, going along with the whole Patriot Act and the authorization of force. This was a means to get the the U.S. the ability to go and kill people, take over governments, shut uh, like um, regime regime change. change. That was the whole. Yeah. That was that was one of the big things about this. It was just this this Absolutely. massive campaign. Um, Absolutely, Krauthammer, and as you say, he calls it weaponized anthrax, and he mentions Iraq specifically. Yeah. I mean, what's that about? What's that about? There's no evidence Iraq did anything. As you say, there's no even evidence at that time that this is terrorism. Mm-hmm. And there he is. You can't make this stuff in caves in Afghanistan. This must come from Iraq. So I think you're right. I think they got some kind of a briefing, these guys. And and I I don't know, maybe maybe they weren't able to control him because he shouldn't have come out he shouldn't have come out with that that early. It's like look what I know. I'm I'm really in I'm really on the inside. But you know, the thing is too, um, by the end of October they yeah. were really faced with a media issue because now with – I mean I think it was by the end of that same October, the doubts were coming up where it was from, da-da-da. So they had to start separating the two issues as fast as they could. You know? mm-hmm. So that, yeah. that led to a whole other media blitz. Well, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean – and it's important that people understand that. So we haven't talked very much up to this point about the connections between the anthrax attacks and 9-11. We should do that. But, yeah. um, but, but you know, given that, that there, quite a bit of effort had been spent connecting those attacks in the first few months, and so when the anthrax official narrative began to fall apart, and, you know, and this is, this is coming from a U.S. intelligence lab, it, it – there was a panic, I'm sure, and they thought we have to disconnect these two tags from now on in everybody's mind. And in a way, the FBI's job from that day to the present day has been, first of all, to get people to forget about the anthrax attacks and to the extent they th- think about them to say, oh, no, that's solved. That was a lone nut in the system, which, you know, and it has nothing to do with 9-11. So my book is really trying to go against the FBI and to say they were connected. They mm-hmm. were connected, you know, and you have to see that. And that's why even if you're not interested in the anthrax attacks, hopefully you're interested in the granddaddy of all terrorist attacks, 9-11, which is the gift that keeps on giving mm-hmm. and, that, and that keeps being used as a justification of all these outrageous acts. And if you're interested in 9-11, you have to study the anthrax attacks. Well, Graham, let's get into some of those connections. You've got a whole chapter on them, and it's dispersed throughout the book, and specifically connections with the hijackers. And right. we, can, we can bring back our, our favorite uh, character, well, not so favorite character, Muhammad Atta, <laughs> because right. he, he, he's got, you've got a, a – it's, it's really an absurd story. It's funny, but disturbing at the same time because of the significance of it and what it meant. But maybe tell us a bit about the Muhammad Atta story and him trying to get a loan – 
um, in the, what right. was it, like a year or so before 9-11. Right, right. Well, this story, again, is reported by ABC News, Brian Ross, again, deeply implicated. Um, <clears throat> and he says that, uh, you know, we've discovered that uh, an employee of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, a woman by the name of Janelle Bryant, was approached by Mohammed Atta, um, and he wanted a loan. There's some kind of a program that if you, you know, I don't know, to help farmers uh, who needed loans. And so he, he thought he fit in that category. <clears throat> he had recently come to the U.S. <laughs> he recently come into the U.S. and he explained to Ms. Bryant in her office that he had this dream which was to fly crop duster planes <laughs> over over American fields. <laughs> and um, he would really like a loan. I think he wanted $650,000. <clears> and she was very polite, according to this story, and said, well, <clears throat> I'll see what I can do to help you. Uh, what exactly do you want the money for? Well, I, you know, I want to take an ordinary uh, plane, not a crop duster plane, a bigger plane, and modify it so that it can be a crop duster plane, but a crop duster plane with bigger capacity so that all the spraying that you need to do can be done in one go. You don't have to keep landing and <laughs> picking out more substance. You can just spray the heck out of whatever you're spraying. <clears throat> and she says, well, that's kind of weird because actually I know a few things about crop duster planes and it's usually essential that they be small and nimble. Um, and this doesn't sound like a very nimble plane. And he just brushes it off. He said, oh, I'm an engineer. My name is Mohammed Atta, A-T-T-A. <laughs> um, spelling right. <laughs> that's right. He, he doesn't try to hide his identity. He says, you know, I've come from uh, Egypt via, what does he say? I think it's Egypt via Afghanistan. And uh, I'm an engineer, so I can handle this. I can handle the technical problems. <clears throat> so... Um, they continue to talk. She has to give him a little bit of bad news at one point. She says, well, you know, you're not an American citizen, and so you're not really el eligible for this. And so he gets, he gets upset. He gets irate. He says, what would stop me from going around behind the desk and cutting your throat? <laughs> and then just taking the money from the safe. Wow. And, you know, and I, I kind of think that would be the moment where she might pick up the phone yeah. and ask for security, you know. But instead, no, uh, the ever calm Miss Bryant said, well, first of all, we don't keep large amounts of cash in the in the safe. And secondly, I know karate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh, sorry. I just, I just find this whole story so absurd. I know karate. Well, for all I know, she could have beaten him up. He wasn't a very big guy. But anyway, um, all kinds of other bizarre things happen in that interview. Um, he sees a picture on her wall of Washington, D.C. with the various monuments, including the Pentagon. And he says, oh, I've never seen such a good view, a picture of uh, um, a view from the air of Washington with all these monuments. Can I, I want to buy it. And he starts throwing cash down on her desk. And of course, you and I are wondering, are, are thinking the whole time, this is the crew, this is the Al-Qaeda crew who, who ran a plane into the Pentagon, right? They would want such a photograph. He keeps throwing cash down and she says, no, I won't sell it. It was a gift from a friend. So, okay, 
th- this is not enough of a giveaway. He then says to her, you know, how would you feel if people attacked monuments and buildings in your country as they have attacked things in, in our countries, um, like Afghanistan, where I have just come from? So he's starting to get irate and, and he begins praising Osama bin Laden. This is a, <laughs> this is a, you know, very, um, praiseworthy man whom the whole world will eventually know about. Right. And, um, I can't remember. Oh, and then he asks her, he asks her about security in Washington and security at the World Trade Center. He says he would like to check out these buildings, you know, and on, I mean, it's a biz- totally bizarre interview. He gives and, away every conceivable thing. Then doesn't and he, he's supposed he adds that, oh, and I'm a card carrying member of the group called Al Qaeda. Right, right, right. You know, I'm affiliated with these people. And she sits there, supposedly, very blandly, nodding politely. Um, and uh, so here's a guy who's supposed to be the head of the most, you know, secret and deadly group ever to hit the United States from outside. And um, and he gives away the whole game in this interview. And and he just would have brought himself to the attention of security and police and everything else. I mean, it's a Department of Agriculture employee that he's threatening to cut her throat. So anyway, um, it's pretty clear that, um, that this whole thing is a setup. And it's a setup in one of two ways, and I don't know which way. First of all, this interaction may never have happened. This could be a story that Janelle Bryant and Brian Ross have somehow been induced to tell as pure propaganda. That's possible. I don't have any independent corroboration. The other possibility is that they did actually carry out this dramatic scenario, this play, if you like, um, this enactment. enactment. But in that case, it's obvious that this so-called Muhammad Atta, who may or may not be the original actual Muhammad Atta who lived and studied Islam in Egypt. Um, it may not be him at all, but this so-called Muhammad Atta is obviously laying down a trail we're all supposed to follow. This is the kind of thing they did. They did the same thing with the whole crop duster scenario. One story after another of, you know, suspect looking Arabic guys going up to crop duster planes and, and airports and taking videos of them and asking questions, very intrusive, um, and you have to understand that all this talk about planes with substances and, gee, could we buy a crop duster plane, this isn't about 9-11. This is all about the anthrax attacks. This is how you would carry out – this is one of the ways you would carry out a devastating biological attack in the United States by getting a plane that can disperse large quantities of biological weapons from the air, and you would do it in a populated area. And that's what these guys are going around, you know, in the months before 9-11. They're running around checking out crop duster planes, and it's one of several scenarios that ties these hijackers, because these are some of the same guys who would later be called the 9-11 hijackers, are out there looking for ways to disperse a biological weapon. And there's one other thing you have to know, and that is that U.S. intelligence had been busy promoting the notion that the crop duster plane 
was considered by Saddam Hussein to be his doomsday weapon, mm -hmm. and that this is the kind of vehicle he had chosen with which to disperse his biological weapon. So all the pieces are putting being put in place here for a 9-11 attack followed by uh, an anthrax attack by similar people affiliated with the same group. And that's what we were supposed to believe. And Judith Miller was one of those people, one of those journalists who was tying Iraq to the crop dusters. So this, She was. Yeah, this whole narrative was being set up. Um, yes. It's just, it's remarkable. It's astounding, really, all, everything that was going on and how, how this whole narrative was created. And then it just kind of fell apart. But uh, I guess we'll never know exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly why that happened. But um, Well, there were all yeah. kinds of references to these deadly, scary crop duster planes until the anthrax attacks, hmm. um, well, of course, as they eventually happened, they were much more low-tech, but also as they fell apart, as the story fell apart, we never heard about crop dusters again. Mm -hmm. But George Bush did, did order all crop duster planes in the U.S. grounded after 9-11 mm -hmm. uh, on more than one occasion. So there was a very high-level pretense uh, that we're taking this threat very seriously. Well, Graham, there's one other interesting connection, um, and that is to actually Robert Stevens himself, the first man who died as a result of these attacks. He was in Florida, and uh, well, can you tell a bit about the, the hijack connection to him? Yes. See, there are quite a few different connections between the so-called 19 hijackers who did 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. So crop duster planes are one, but there are others. Now, in this case, Robert Stevens, the first person who died from, from contracting anthrax, was a photo editor for a tabloid in Florida called The Sun. It's connected to the National Enquirer. They were both owned by the same organization, America Media Inc. Um, so, who was the editor, chief editor of The Sun? A man by the name of Mike Irish. And his wife, Trish, I sorry, Gloria Irish, was a real estate agent. Okay. So, we have a connection between Gloria Irish and anthrax. Not only in the sense that this employee of the Sun had had died of it, but also the whole building and that AMI was located and was found to be contaminated with anthrax. So who is Gloria Irish? Well, it turns out in her capacity as real estate agent, she had found apartments for two of the 19 hijackers. And in fact, these apartments in Florida ended up being used, being lived in by four of the hijackers and being indirectly connected to at least six, some say nine of the 19 hijackers. So here's the connection. Imagine a, a little board where you're trying to, you know, a police board. You've got Gloria Irish in the middle. She's connected to anthrax, and she's connected to 19 hijackers, and the connection is pretty direct. And this was really, I mean, when you think about the odds of that being coincidence, um, it's, it's just, it's tiny, tiny, tiny odds. So there is a connection, and there are multiple connections, in fact, between the 19 hijackers and um, 
the Florida anthrax stuff. Um, same airports being used, um, you know, uh, yeah. and here's where we get in, we get into the Israeli connection as well. Mm-hmm. We have hijacker, whole bunch of hijackers living in Florida and we have all kinds of Israeli agents living very close to them. In some cases, just feet from them. All this is just before the attacks of the fall. Uh, it's a real nest of connections. Yeah. Like Mike Irish, um, knew Robert Stevens for 25 years. And Mike himself, who was Gloria's husband, editor, and he was the editor-chief of The Sun, he was a member of the flight school, the, the same one at which Muhammad Atta was, was flying out of. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and some of the hijackers su- supposedly went to the same gym mm-hmm. as the employees of The Sun, and several of the hijackers had supposedly taken out prescriptions to The Sun. <clears throat> and Gloria Irish, by the way, was the real estate agent for the first anthrax victim, Robert Stevens, as well as several of the hijackers. It's a pretty direct connection. And she knew these hijackers. It wasn't like she couldn't remember them. She would say, oh, yeah, Marwan al-Shehi. Marwan was very nice. He would always phone me when they they were going to miss an appointment. And I drove them around town for a long time. And she said, you know, I had never met a Muslim before. It was quite interesting for me. Personally, I'm Jewish. I had never met a Muslim. So here's Marwan al-Shehi. Well, and of course, Marwan al-Shehi is the guy who's close friend of Muhammad Atta, and if I'm not mistaken, is the guy who supposedly piloted the plane into the South Tower. So there is a nest of connections between mm-hmm. the anthrax attacks and the 9-11 attacks. You can make a case for her being a cyanim? Is that how you say that? Yes. Yes, there's a very good chance. And of course, in other words, that she's working for Israel. Mm-hmm. Um Probably didn't know the whole context. Good chance she didn't know what she was doing, but was probably instructed to, you know, do the following things. It would be very helpful for us if you did. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when she's confronted with all this, she says, no, 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 no. There was no connection. It's all coincidence. Mm -hmm. And the FBI is helping her out with that, too. The FBI is helping her out, yeah. There's uh, another uh, piece about Robert Stevens, and I'm I'm not – quite sure what to do with it or how to think about it, Graham. Um, yeah. It seems that this photo editor of uh, the National Enquirer and then the, the Sun, yeah. um, you know, up until that time, he had been, I guess, part of the group that was publishing images and stories about uh, the Bush daughters, you know, behaving drunkenly and, and uh, you know, just being stupid. Uh, right. That might have threatened to put you know George Bush in a bad light. Um, yeah. But then you know there's this other story that you know we had a an investigator here in the U.S. by the name of Sherman Skolnick, uh, uh-huh. who who was uh, pretty good in his time. He would uh, investigate um, uh, judicial corruption and and had all all of these series concerning um, how the, the U.S. wasn't in fact an empire and went into all sorts of uh, various details about uh, Kennedy assassination and the business mm-hmm. doings of Hillary Clinton, et cetera, et cetera. And yep. anyway, one of his assertions was that uh, American Media Inc., um, and particularly Robert Stevens, had access to pictures of, uh, of George Bush um, with his uh, alleged male lover. 
Jeff Gannon? Uh, <laughs> no. The, uh, a different one? A, a different one, is, uh, uh, who apparently the Secret Service knew about. Um, okay. I don't know if you'd ever heard that before, um, whether or not it's it's valid or not, but um, it it just, you know, or if it's just coincidence that it was uh, Robert Stevens who was the one who opened up the envelope, even though it was addressed specifically to the photo editor. Um, right. But it seems that he would have been in a position uh, to greatly further undermine Bush, uh, possibly. Well, that... Yeah, no, these are interesting. Um, I certainly had heard of the one about him um, portraying Bush's daughters in a bad light. I hadn't heard about the male lover story. I don't know anything about it. We would we would need to see if there's any corroboration. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I thought about, uh, when I wrote the book, mentioning the first of the two, because it was very very widely discussed on the internet the because let's face it stevens worked for a tabloid i mean he did he was a photo editor you know what that means <laughs> you find the you find the worst photographs you could possibly find of someone and then you distort them to make them look even worse <laughs> right you know you know oh, yeah. what they do to poor I always feel so sorry for movie actors when mm-hmm. I see what they do. This look how she's looking now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! So I mean, we can't. I, I I don't romanticize Stevens. That's the kind of thing he did. So I'm I'm sure he did quite a job on the Bush daughters. Um, <clears throat> however, I didn't put it in my book because I I just didn't think it was strong enough. Mm-hmm. I didn't have enough corroboration. I didn't want to speculate, so I left it out. But it's certainly possible that he got in the bad books, because otherwise it's not clear why he would be targeted. I mean, in fact, you know, the sun really doesn't qualify. It's, it's not up there with the other agencies that were targeted, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS. We can understand them being targeted with anthrax letters, but the sun, you exactly. know, it, you know, it does seem weird and therefore it's perfectly legitimate to research these questions. Uh, was it Stevens in particular? Was it AMI? Um, and what did they have? So if they had compromising photos of George W., then sure, that could explain it. Uh, I hadn't heard that. Uh, but, you know, I just want to say my book is is a, a first draft of the inquiry. I want people to continue the work. So that that would that's all good stuff that people need to look into. Well, there was one, one other interesting thing in that chapter – with the hijackers to mentioned, Graham, um, and this goes yeah. back to the to the Israeli connection, because you mentioned mm-hmm. the the number of spies that were going around. For any of our listeners who don't know, there were like over a hundred, maybe two hundred. I don't even know the number of alleged art students tramping around the United States. Not even that in Canada too. Canada too. There was a tiny story mm-hmm. about them hitting a few buildings in Calgary. Yeah, and it turns out a lot of these were actually doing work for Israeli intelligence and scoping out kind of sensitive locations and people, including um, like shadowing DEA officers in their, in their investigations of people involved in drug smuggling. And so a lot of these guys were, were, it it looks like they were shadowing these terrorists, these hijackers, allegedly Mm -hmm. they, they were Mm -hmm. living, living across the street, living next door. They were, um, they were located next to them in locations in Florida, New Jersey, um, a couple other cities that I can't remember right now. Now, there, but yep. there's one other guy that, that wasn't implicated in this scandal, and 
Um, it, well, it has to do with Hani Hanjur now. Hanjur was the guy that allegedly piloted the flight, what was it, which, flight 77 into the Pentagon, right? Yes, that's correct. And he, fr- from all the testimony of uh, numerous people that knew him and were involved with him with his flight training, they all said he was a terrible pilot, and, except the, the 9-11 Commission, they, they got testimony from a guy that said, well, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong it, it, he said that he was basically a good pilot, right? <laughs> yes, yes. So, there's just one guy, the one guy. In, in all the in in the midst of people saying this guy couldn't fly to save his life. We get one guy um, who says, "Oh, you know, he's just really quite remarkably good." <laughs> <laughs> that would be so the one we, the commission talked to. Yeah, and this that guy. Would, that would be, <laughs> yeah, you can tell us more about him. Go ahead. And this guy was his name is Eddie Shalov. An ex-IDF yeah. officer, so Israeli right. Defense Who Forces, flew in, flew in from Israel <laughs> on April in, in April two thousand one. So yeah. five months before nine eleven, he gets to he gets to the states. He's working at this uh, this flight training school with the hijackers, and he's the one mm-hmm. guy that the commission goes to that says that Hani Hanjur was a great pilot. And then he that's disa- right. Then he disappears a few years later or a couple years later, that's and no one correct. can find him. That's correct. You got it. Yeah. No, there are numerous. Uh, Israeli ties to this. And just so that your listeners know, uh, this talk about all the Israeli agents in the U.S., most of them posing as art students, although some of them in New York were under the cover of urban moving systems. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not controversial. I mean, this is not gossip. Um, uh, a DEA um, uh, document, U.S. government document was leaked uh, I don't know who leaked it, um, and I've got a copy of it. You can probably still get it online, in yeah, which it talks. Yeah, it talks very frankly about these art students and the fact that they clearly weren't art students, and they were clearly Israeli agents. And it gives names and it gives affiliations. And what did they do? Well, this guy, you know, did that. And of course, you know, since military service is compulsory in Israel, it's not surprising that they all had a military background. But it is interesting um, when you look in detail at who they were, like a surprising number of them were explosives experts. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would have thought, you know, having a bunch of uh, – foreign agents who are explosive experts walking around the U.S. just before 9-11, just before the obvious explosive destruction of the World Trade Center would be, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, worrisome. But it's not worrisome at all to the FBI. Uh, They don't care. Hmm. (laughs) Well, maybe now would be a good time, uh, Graham, if um, if we went a little bit into how the FBI and the government kind of having been forced to shift its attention from outside sources of the anthrax to uh, this domestic threat, or I forget how you termed it, and um, how they turned to uh, Stephen Hatfill and, um, you know, considered him uh, this person of interest and John Ashcroft's continued kind of – projecting uh, some suspicion on this poor fellow. Right. Yeah, there were several people that the FBI investigated, but the two most prominent ones are Stephen Hatfill and Bruce Ivins. And uh, before we get into the, the stories of these particular guys, we should pay attention to what is often overlooked here. And that is that we've had this 
serious, serious crime, multiple homicide, anthrax attacks, which shows all sorts of evidence about having been planned and coordinated and using very sophisticated stuff from government labs and all this. So what does the FBI decide to look for? A lone wolf. I mean, this is a major thing we need to pay attention to. All the signs point to a group, not a lone wolf. Nonetheless, the FBI, of course, if they want to cover up the true criminals, are going to say, no, no, lone wolf, and preferably lone nut. Lone nut is even better than lone wolf, because mm-hmm. if you can find somebody who's psychologically imbalanced, it's just an anomaly. It tells you nothing about you know, flawed structures, corrupt institutions, nothing. You're always going to have the occasional mentally unbalanced person, means nothing. So that's the direction they go. So first they go after Stephen Hatfield who was a guy working uh, in the U.S. as an expert in biological weapons, among other things, connected with a number of agencies. The guy has a pretty shady past in some ways. I don't think it's a guy I would particularly want to go and have a beer with. Um, Not only did he inflate his resume, he seems to have been involved in some not very nice stuff in in the uh, wars in Southern Africa. Um, but there was never any evidence that he had actually been the anthrax perpetrator. And yet, as you say, they, they, did, they had picked him, they chose him at some point as their person of interest, and they hounded him mercilessly uh, in his own house and, you know, dredging little ponds near his house and making all sorts of claims. For some reason, Hatful decided to fight back. And I'm not sure whether he knew stuff about the real attacks, which gave him a little leverage, uh, or whether he's just a guy who had had enough. His career was was finished. He was drinking too much. He was confined to his house, basically. He was depressed. In any case, he fought back. And, uh, and it did go to court, and this is one of those few cases in the last couple of decades where the court seems to do something reasonable <clears throat> in this area. And the judge said, well, there's no evidence. There's no evidence. He threw it out. And uh, Hatfield was able to sue the, I don't remember who it is, whether, whether you sue the Department of Justice or what agency, but he successfully got, I think it was $2.5 million. Actually, 5.82. Like he cleaned oh, up. Sorry. He cleaned up. <laughs> All right. Well, you see, that's what happens when you you wrote the book two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean I, he, he made out. He really did well. And I'm, you know, he made out like per- a bandit. He, well, apparently he was a bandit. <laughs> But well, Ash- you know when I go ahead. Yeah, when I asked, I, I asked a guy who knows a lot about the anthrax attacks. I said, "How do you think Hatfield managed to win that and get the five million or whatever?" And he said, "Well, he said I think Hatfield knew stuff, and I think he basically said to them, you pay me, or I'm going to come forward.' Now, mm-hmm. now." Now, do I know that's true? No, I don't. I, I, I like to think of people as innocent until proven guilty. So my official position on Hatfield is I might not like the guy uh, for his political leanings, 
But as far as I can tell, he had nothing to do with the anthrax attacks. So he got off and he got some money and hopefully was able to establish some kind of life after that. Although it's hard to imagine anyone hiring him after that. Uh, and then eventually the FBI went on to their next big find, which was Bruce Ivins, who turned out to be the perfect guy. I mean, he's, he was, uh, he had a PhD. He was an anthrax researcher. He worked at, at Fort Detrick at the U.S. Army Military Institute of Infectious, Infectious Diseases. And he was an anthrax expert. He had been trying for years to develop an anthrax vaccine. And he was a Catholic and he played the organ for the local church and he was well respected in his community and had a good sense of humor and had tried to help the FBI in the early stages of the investigation in the anthrax attack. But at some point they turned on him. And I think they turned on him as the perfect victim when they found out that he had mental uh, health issues and he'd been on medication and he'd confessed this to some employee friends of his that he'd been feeling really down and really anxious and all this kind of stuff and and when the FBI claimed that the anthrax and letters derived from a flask under Ivan's care um, he seems to have accepted that as true and have gone into even more anxiety saying how could I have been so careless as to let a killer, you know, take anthrax from this flax under my care? So he he became kind of a, a, a mass of nerves and not a guy who was in a very good position to defend himself and fight back. <clears throat> the FBI came to his place of work. <clears throat> they showed up there. Um, they showed up, you know, they said things to his family. According to his lawyer, they <clears throat> offered money to, I think, one of his sons to squeal on his father. They did the worst, na the nastiest things you could do, um, you know, grabbing his garbage and surveying his house in the middle of the night. And, and they made him very nervous indeed. And they also said that they were going to um, seek the death penalty once they had uh, formally indicted him. And this is the lead-up to the sudden and mysterious death of Bruce Ivins before he could be indicted by a grand jury. And many people I've talked to have said it, the grand jury would never have indicted him because there was no evidence. But in any case, that was that was the process that was coming. Ivins had a lawyer. Um, he was worried about being executed for this. And suddenly he shows up dead. And we're told that he had killed himself by taking essentially an overdose of Tylenol, I think Tylenol 2 with codeine, and um, his wife had found him comatose, he'd been taken to the hospital, and had lived maybe a couple of days, and that was it. Well, there are so many things you could say about this, I don't know where to start. Uh, first of all, if he did take his life, which is certainly possible, the man seems to have been mentally tortured and in terrible shape. If he took his life, then the FBI drove him to it. And since they had no good evidence, it was in fact, um, in fact, the whistleblower uh, who you mentioned earlier, um, who came out last year on this issue, said that um, the FBI has is still sitting on evidence which is exculpatory evidence in other words it shows that ivans couldn't have done this um so they knew ivans didn't do it and yet they they went after a mentally ill person and 
quite possibly drove him to kill himself. The other possibility, of course, which can't be ruled out, is that they just had him killed. Um, you know, to me, that would not be unusual. It was clear they didn't want to go to trial. They had a very weak case. Ivan's had a good lawyer. Um, the fact, even if it's true that the anthrax came from a flask under his protection, it turns out there were at least a hundred people who had access to that flask. So it, it by no means points to Ivan's. They were never found able to find a spore anywhere on him. They were never able to demonstrate that he knew how to make that sophisticated product. He didn't even work with dry anthrax. He worked with wet anthrax. He said, I could no more have made that than fly to the moon. So I think they didn't want it to come to trial, and they were happy one way or another that this man died. And and they wasted no time after he died in saying, well, you know, that shows he, he killed himself out of a sense of guilt. And so he's the culprit. And I thought, boy, talk about shameless. Talk about shameless. You cause the death of somebody, one either directly or indirectly, and then you say that death is proof of his guilt, and he will go down in history as the anthrax killer, even though the evidence is pathetic. Because, you know, I've read the whole FBI document. It's pathetic. It's ludicrous. So that's that's the official story. If, if people listening want to know, Who's the FBI's official story? What caused them to finally close the case? Well, their official anthrax killer is poor old Dr. Bruce Ivins, and that's how they closed the case, even though the case is pathetically weak. Well, you even talked about in your book that the FBI was pursuing uh, investigations against Ivins in the criminal uh, situation, but then in the civil hearing, uh, since Robert Stevens' family was suing them, they were actually disproving right. their own case at the same time. You talk a little bit about that and how ludicrous That's that right. is. That's correct. Uh, a major um, conflict apparently arose within the Department of Justice. Uh, as you say, one one group, the criminal group, was trying desperately to name Ivan's the criminal. Uh, but because the family of the first anthrax victim, Robert Stevens, had launched a criminal suit, um, you had civil lawyers making the opposite argument and pointing out in all kinds of ways how you Samrid, that particular lab, and Bruce Ivins couldn't have made this highly weaponized product. And apparently this conflict erupted into shouting in the halls. And eventually the um, the ones who wanted to frame Bruce Ivins won out and the other people were scolded and told to quickly settle and to be quiet. So, you know, I mean, this has got fraud all over it. And I, I want people to read the book because I, I want them to see how rotten this is. And once you see how rotten it is, you will be led inevitably into the rottenness of the 9-11 event as well. Well, Graham, I think we've pretty much covered, <laughs> covered the anthrax okay. today. But I wanted to, to discuss one more thing. <clears throat> Sorry. Right. Because um, you've kind of hinted at this a couple times throughout the show. And the first aspect is the, the physical intim intimidation of legislatures. You wrote an article, uh, you, well, you gave a talk, and it was later turned into an article about this very phenomenon using 9-11 and the anthrax attacks, as well as two incidents that occurred in Canada. 
And the other aspect of this that you mentioned is the, well, and it, it ties into Ivan's as well in the FBI, is this use of a technique by the FBI and the RCMP of not only entrapment, but also essentially creating terrorism and putting people in horrible situations that essentially ruins their lives, sometimes takes their lives. And yes. I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of the, 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 the story in B.C. Um, yeah. Maybe can you just give a little background on your article and then um, maybe we can discuss this, this case in B.C. a bit. Yeah, are you able to give a link on your site to that article? Um, yep, I can do that right now. So that's on the chat. Yeah, that's that's on Truth and Shadows, their website. Um, well, it you know I don't know what point it was. I was thinking about a talk I was going to give last November, and I realized that there's a theme that nobody seems to be talking about, and that is the intimidation of legislatures by essentially the executive branch. And this is what's clearly happening in the United States, but it's also, it seemed to me, happening in my country, in Canada. And I thought, why not give a talk where you mention, say, four cases, two American and two Canadian, where this appears to be happening. And I suspect it's happening in many other places in the world too, but let's just take these four. And so that's what that talk is about. So for the U.S. cases, I give the two I've already mentioned today, so I don't have to go through those again. 9-11 itself was a thorough intimidation of the legislature, um, that is Congress. And the Patriot Act, sorry, the uh, anthrax attacks uh, directly following continued that intimidation, both in terms of war and in terms of passing repressive legislation at home. So now I looked to two Canadian cases, which are more recent. One is in 2013 and one is in 2014. And I dare say most American listeners don't know anything about them. Before I say a word about them, I'll try and keep this brief. Uh, I'll just mention this technique that you mentioned. The FBI and the Royal Canadian, Canadian Mounted Police that works closely with the FBI have a technique where they find essentially losers, people who are on the borders of society. And, of course, they love it if they're Muslim in some sense or other. They look very hard to find such people. And then they get some people to dress up as Muslims and to say, hello, brother, you know, I'm from Saudi Arabia or whatever, and I think we should do jihad together, and I've got some money, and I've got some weapons, and why don't we blow up the Brooklyn Bridge or whatever it is. And the poor dupe, sometimes they're mentally ill, sometimes they're impoverished, sometimes they're guys who were in jail for various things. The dupe comes into it, and of course, at the crucial moment, the FBI or the RCMP swoops down and arrests them and puts them in jail for the rest of their life, or virtually. I mean, they get very long sentences. So if anybody wants to know about this, they can read about it in a book by um, Trevor, Trevor Aronson. Trevor Aronson, yes. Uh, I think it's called The Terror Factory. And he detailed, and he went through all the files in the U.S., everybody who's been tried for terrorism since 9-11. So it's a good piece of research. Um, so anyway, um, so this is what 
our own Canadian police did in 2013. They found these two pathetic individuals uh, who had apparently self-converted to some form of Islam. They weren't they weren't members of a of a local Islamic community. They were drug addicts. Um, they were extremely poor. They didn't know where their next meal was coming from. So then the RCMP employs over 200 agents, some of whom pretend to be Muslims and come in, hello, brother, let's create jihad, let's do this, let's do that, trying to get these guys to do something. And finally, on Canada Day, which is July 1st, it's the equivalent of July 4th in the U.S., on Canada Day, at the actual provincial legislature in British Columbia. That's the equivalent of, you know, a state legislature in the U.S. Suddenly, three pressure cooker bombs are found right next to the legislature. So this is the intimidation of legislatures. Well, how did they get there? Well, the RCMP agents pretending to be Muslims suggested these guys build pressure cooker bombs. They then helped them build the pressure cooker bombs. They then put them in a car and drove them around and said, oh, here is a nice place to put the pressure cooker bombs behind the bushes next to the legislature. They then swept down, of course, and arrested them, and it became a big court case. They didn't let the bombs go off. That's one thing they didn't do. But this is this is the perfect way this is the standard pattern that the fbi and the rcmp use they create terrorists from pathetic individuals and give them the ideas and the means to carry out their act and this keeps the global war on terror going this scares the population and it scares legislators now the other activity which i'll very briefly deal with, happened the year later, 2014 in Canada, when a guy is somehow let loose with an actual weapon, a rifle. He shoots to death um, a man in the Canadian military who's guarding the um, war memorial in Ottawa. And then he runs he runs across the street, or he drives across the street, and then runs into the parliament. I mean, you gotta you got to picture this. The Canadian parliament is where our federal legislature meets, he's running down the Hall of Honor, and the Prime Minister and his party are just off the hall on one side, and the other major party at the time, the NDP, is in a caucus room just off the other side. Um, Very easy to get into these rooms, and here's a man with a loaded rifle who's just killed somebody running down the hall. Well, Shots ring out. Talk about intimidating the legislators. You know, members of parliament who are behind those doors are terrified. I mean, they hear, they hear, you know, what, a total of 59 shots in rapid succession and figure, you know, they're all going to be murdered. Um, so how is that? So just two little brief. I'm trying to I'm trying to end this off, but I'm trying to get you the, the gist. Mm-hmm. It turns out that of those 59 shots, 56 were fired by the security and the police with nine millimeter handguns. They shot the perpetrator 31 times. He had a hunting rifle designed in 
the eight, late 1800s, he was in no position to carry out a major attack. Um, and it turned out that this was the perfect incident, which then allowed a bill called C-51 in Canada to be passed, which is similar to, guess what, the Patriot Act, and which takes away crucial rights of the Canadian people, empowers our intelligence agencies and our federal police to do intrusive uh, activities against us. So I think it's extremely suspicious, and I wrote a report on it, and you'll find a link to that report if you look at that uh, article I do on Truth and Shadows. So any Canadian especially who's interested in this will get a chance to read um, my document, which is called The October twenty second, 2014 Ottawa Shootings, Why Canadians Need a Public Inquiry. Great, thank you. So Jim. anyway... So, yeah, so the theme there is, you know, in both countries, uh, legislators are being intimidated. Now, before we end the show, I just want to read something from that article. This was from a recording, uh, I believe it was a recording, correct me if I'm wrong, between one of the RCMP moles and the one of the so-called attackers in the in BC. Um, right. Nut- Nuttall. So, right. So this is the quote that from the from the guy himself. He says, "Until a couple of days ago, I didn't clue in that people were going to die. I've never killed anybody. I'm not a murderer." And then you exactly. write, "At another point, Natal says clearly that he needs spiritual counseling. Quote: I want to know in my heart that I did the right thing. I need some spiritual guidance." Then you write, "The RCMP mole, anxious to, to discourage these signs of an awakening of conscience, replies, "What's the spiritual guidance going to give you?" Natal says. This is about my soul we're talking about, my wife's soul. The mole says, all of us, we have our own destiny. Allah chooses it for us. We don't choose it for ourselves. <laughs> yeah. So, so you, you finish this <laughs> off. You write, uh, here's the essence of entrapment. A citizen shows clear signs of being ready to back away from a not yet committed crime. But the police, instead of encouraging this tendency, work to beguile, seduce, and trap the citizen into the commission of this crime. And I think that just sums it all up <clears throat> right there, just how atrocious this behavior is on, on, the behalf, on behalf of the RCMP and the FBI, that they would take an individual like this who is showing signs of not wanting to commit a crime, having yeah. second thoughts about it, not wanting to do it, and they egg him on to do it. They, they incite him to do it. It's criminal. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is criminal. I, I think every one of those 200 RCMP officers should be, in, in, should be on trial for doing that. Well, we've almost gone a full two hours, and I think we're all talked out. So I just—it's um, been marvelous. Yeah, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Graham. Uh, we had a great time. We really appreciate everything you do, and the the book that you wrote, two thousand one Anthrax Deception, highly recommended. Um, you've got a couple websites that you're involved with. Um, can you give yeah. us the, the the URLs for those? Uh, not the URLs, but you can oh, find the them names. if you Google them very quickly. One is the Journal of 9-11 Studies. And just, you know, Google that, you'll find it. And the other is the Consensus. It's called Consensus 9-11, the 9-11 Best Evidence Panel. And I'm involved in both of those. Great. Well, thanks, Graham. It's been a blast. Thank you. Well, it has been a blast. I had a good time. The two hours went quickly. And I have to say, you guys make a very good team. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, we appreciate that. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. We'll keep in touch. Thanks, Graham. Thank you for your work. Okay.
All right. So, okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 So everyone, um, yeah, tune in next week. We hope you like the show and we hope you buy the book and read it. Like I, I'll recommend it again. It's really good. Def- <laughs> definitely get the book. Mm-hmm. Okay. The must read. Okay. So everyone take care and tune in to Behind the Headlines tomorrow and we'll be back next week. Health and Wellness Show is on Fridays. Okay, bye-bye.